Welcome to Vineyard Church Cardiff podcast. Alice is finishing our series, Do Not Lose Heart in 2 Corinthians today. Enjoy. Hello, today we are finishing our series, Don't Lose Heart. We've been in the book of 2 Corinthians these past few weeks, and that is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that he'd planted some years before. And there's lots of different themes that run through this book. Um, But one of the most resounding ones is that of hope. And in fact, the phrase, do not lose heart, has been taken directly from Paul's letter here. Over the last few weeks, we've covered lots of ground. You know, we started by looking at the reminder that God is our comforter, of how Christian hope is based not on our circumstances, but on the person of Jesus. How our hope is both rooted in the past and future and how we can draw on these to encourage and strengthen us, to give us hope in our present moment. And we've looked these past few weeks at how this message of hope overflows from us into the world around us. So today I'm going to finish up this series. I'm going to be in the penultimate chapter of 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. And I just wanted to leave us with one last thought. If that's okay, (laughs) I hope it is. Um, We've uh, skipped forward a few chapters, you might have noticed. So I just want to take a bit of time to unpack a bit of the context. Um, Otherwise, chapter 12 um, is quite tricky to understand. If you turn to chapter 12, you'll see how verse 1 starts with this. Paul says this, I must go on boasting. And if you scan through the, the previous chapters before it, through 10 and 11, you'll see that he uses this phrase a lot. He's been doing a lot of boasting. And that might seem strange, you know, are we allowed to boast? Is that something we're even allowed to do? You know, especially for us Brits, you know, as kind of alongside a love of tea and a compulsion to queue at all times, kind of an avoidance of any level of self-praise is is a distinctly kind of British trait, isn't it? I know when one of my kids is like, I'm amazing at this activity. I'm in some kind of, often some kind of internal battle. On one hand being like, yes, great, you have lots of self-confidence, you be you, that's amazing. And on the other hand, thinking, but don't be overconfident. Don't come across as, you know, that you're bragging about it. (laughs) And that's maybe how we feel when we read these chapters and we read Paul talking like this, you know, like, hey, Paul, don't be a big head. (laughs) And of course, whilst Paul certainly wasn't British, um, I, I think he would agree with us here. You know, he's already said in chapter 10, verse 17, that his only boast is in Jesus. So this isn't self-praise by Paul, but in fact, it's a response to the boasting of other Christian leaders that were causing havoc in the church in Corinth. And Paul sarcastically throughout the letter calls these leaders super apostles. So context is key. The Corinthians are being drawn away from the gospel message by these super apostles. Compared to these apostles, Paul doesn't look massively impressive. It would seem that these apostles have poked fun at his speaking skills, at the fact that he is a labourer. You know, there's some degree of snobbery going on here, perhaps. Um, at the fact that, at his poverty, at the fact that he has undergone so much hardship. And these apostles are asking the church, you know, is this, is this guy Paul, is he really the poster boy that you want for following Jesus? And as such, some people in the church are beginning to feel embarrassed or ashamed of Paul, and they're questioning his leadership and his authority. Now, I think we know enough about Paul to know that his concern here is not one of kind of image management of public perception. But he is bothered that an undermining of his leadership is resulting in an undermining of the message of Jesus. He is bothered that these super apostles, these celebrity pastors, 
that are preaching a message that success and power and wealth are markers of the gospel. For Paul, this is a total betrayal of the message of Jesus. And he thinks that the Corinthians are foolish to be hoodwinked by it. He is full, it says in chapter 11, verse 2, he is full of godly jealousy for this church that he has planted. He's desperate that they stay true to the gospel. Let's not kind of skip over how hard this situation was for Paul. You know, the audacity of these Corinthians to question him in this way, their ingratitude, their disrespect, and all just because he hasn't flattered them and told them what he wanted, what they wanted to hear. This is heartbreaking for him as a leader. It's totally demoralizing. He says this in chapter 12, verse 11, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. He's like, you should have stood up for me. You've totally stabbed me in the back. Do I really have to prove myself to you? So rather reluctantly here throughout chapters 10 to 12, what Paul is doing is he's taking on the boasts of, these, of his opponents, what they are boasting about in themselves in comparison to him. And he's doing this in order to, to defend his ministry, to defend the message of Jesus. So read through chapters 10 and 11 in your own time. But um, just to paraphrase it massively here, he's like this. He's like, if these guys want to compare credentials with me, then let's go. Let's bring this on. They boast of their knowledge of scripture. Well, I'm a Pharisee, so I know the whole Bible by heart. They boast about their heritage, their lineage, that they're from good Jewish stock. Well, here, here's my lineage. They want to talk about serving Jesus. <laughs> well, I've given my whole life to serve, by, to serve Jesus. Just look at all that I've been through. I've given everything up to make sure that this message is spread as far and as wide as it can be. And then when we get to chapter 12, Paul's like, they want to boast about the visions and revelations that they've had. Well, here are some of mine. Let's jump in and read it. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. So he starts with reluctance here, you know, there's nothing to be gained, he says. He's like, what am I doing to even be speaking like this? And he shares this vision that he's had. And it would seem that this vision is one that he hasn't shared widely. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Perhaps he's never shared it with anyone. We're told it happened 14 years ago. And I think he's annoyed here. I think that's fair to say that he has to talk about himself in this way. He wants the attention to be on Jesus, not on him. And I think this reluctance is, is underscored by the fact that he talks about himself in the third person here. You know, he says, I know a man. <laughs> when I first read this, I was like, who is this man that Paul's talking about? <laughs> but he's talking about himself. And what he's doing in that moment is he's distancing himself. It's a bit like, you know, if you've ever had like a, a problem and you've wanted to talk about it with someone, but you've kind of pretended that it was actually happening to a friend of yours, not to you. You know, it's like, you know, kind of, um, I've got this friend with this really embarrassing personal problem and it's, it's my friend, it's not me. But I just wondered, have you got any advice for this friend of mine? I would love to hear it. <laughs> 
it's a bit like that. Well, in fact, it's only like that in that it's doing the same thing. It's creating that bit of distance. Paul wants to distance himself. He doesn't want this to become about him. And so he shares that this vision he's had of heaven in all its glory, where he's heard inexpressible things that he can't even talk about. As just a short aside in verse two here, don't be thrown by that phrase third heaven. This isn't kind of weird theology here about like a three tier heaven, you know, with a first class ticket, a second class ticket and whatever, nothing like that. Paul is using terminology that was common in that day, um, that was used in order to get across this idea that heaven was totally unrelated to the world around us that we see. It was in a totally different dimension. So um, the sky, the atmosphere around us was referred to as the first heaven. And then the stars and the galaxies was referred to as the second heaven. And then the third heaven, where God is fully present, where he lives and reigns, was referred to as the third heaven. And it's paradise, we're told in verse three. So Paul has had this amazing vision, and yet he does everything he can to relay this experience without bringing glory to himself. He doesn't want to boast in anything or anyone but Jesus. Let's uh, pick it back up in verse six. He continues, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul here talks about this thorn in his flesh. Now, if you kind of rummage through um, a few commentaries, you'll gather pretty quickly that it's fairly inconclusive. It's fairly open to debate what this thorn in his flesh actually was. Is this an internal battle that he's under, some kind of psychological struggle he's experiencing? You know, in chapter 11, 28, he has talked about the intense pressure he is under that he feels due to the deep levels of concern, the pastoral heart he has for the churches that he's feeling. Is this some kind of leadership burnout? Is it a physical battle, some kind of health issues that, that he's experiencing? Or maybe it's nothing to do with him. Maybe it's a person. Is this thorn his opponents, these super apostles? Or a situation he's struggling with? Maybe it's this church. He's like, you're so frustrating. You're like a thorn in my side. <laughs> we don't know. The reality is we don't know. It's worth saying that we know what he says here. You know, the issue, there isn't any kind of um, ambiguity about how to translate the, this verse. We know, we just don't know exactly what he means by it. It's always been an unknown. He's deliberately not telling them. Maybe because he thinks it's none of their business. <laughs> we don't know, and to overfocus on this point would be to miss the point of what he's saying. Maybe by not by not uh, by keeping it ambiguous, he's allowing it to be universal. You know, this thorn can represent our general condition as human beings, our weaknesses, our hardships, our persecutions, our struggles in all that he lists in verse 10. And Paul does what many of us do when we encounter a difficulty or a hardship. He asks Jesus to take it away. 
He goes to Jesus and he begs that it be taken away. Jesus, this is uncomfortable. Take it away. This thorn hurts. Take it away. He pleads three times for it to be gone. <clears throat> I wonder if he thought it would be taken away. You know, Paul has seen the miraculous in his ministry, this kingdom breaking in time and time again. I mean, if, you're, if you want your mind to be blown, just look in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. It talks about how God did extraordinary miracles through Paul and that even handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul has touched are taken to those that are sick for them to touch. And in that moment, illnesses were cured and evil spirits driven out. I don't know about you, but not many handkerchiefs that I've touched have then gone on to heal people. In fact, it's probably just spread my germs. <laughs> but that's not really the point. What I'm saying is, is that if you're Paul, you could be forgiven here for assuming that when you ask, um, when you knock on the door of heaven and ask for this thorn to be gone, when you beg Jesus to take it away, that you would get healing or a, or a, a miraculous answer. But that is not what happens. Instead, Jesus replies by saying to him, <clears throat> My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And for Paul here, this response that he has from Jesus, what Jesus teaches, teaches him in this morning is the most important lesson that you can learn about grace and what it means to live a life dependent on God. Let's try and understand it a bit for ourselves. So firstly, we are all weak. For Paul, he says that this thorn acts as a constant reminder of his humanity, of his weakness. It's what has driven him into Jesus's presence in the first place, and it's what is keeping him there under the shower of Jesus's grace. It's what stops him from becoming a big head, from becoming a celebrity pastor, a super apostle, full of his own hype. We all have a thorn, whether it be our circumstances, internal battles, our stuff that we're dealing with, physical ailments, an intense time of suffering. No doubt all of us experience, you know, all of the above in different ways, in different seasons of our lives. We are all weak. We are just not always aware of it. Now, I don't know about you, but as a young adult, something that was often thrown my way as a Christian from people who were skeptical of faith was something along the lines of, you know, faith is a crutch for the weak. The implication being that it is for needy people to help them cope with life. You know, my parents went through a really difficult divorce um, when I was very little, and I definitely heard it said within my family that the reason that me and my sisters um, are all into religion <laughs> or have faith in Jesus, as I would say, you know, having not been brought up um, in the way of Jesus, the reason that we are, all have this faith is it's in response to these difficulties in our childhood. It's been our way of coping with it. It's the crutch that we needed to survive it. Maybe someone has said this to you before. Maybe, like me, you have been taught that our response to this suggestion should be one with rebuttal, with denial, you know? No, it's not a crutch for me. I'm not needy. It's not just for needy people anyway. Jesus died for everyone. You know, I kind of approached it, or I thought of it this way for years, and it's only in recent years that I've kind of thought about this again, and I've come to see that this statement is absolutely true, that Christianity is a crutch for the weak. And that's okay. Christianity is for the weak, but that's not a few of us. We are all weak, it's universal. We are all in need of our Father, of his grace and love. We are all deeply messed up. I am in deep need of Jesus. I don't know where I'd be without him in my life. 
don't know where anyone would be without him. I don't know how you would cope with the past year that we've had, let alone anything else, without Jesus. And for me, maybe a better image is not one of a crutch, you know, that's a bit kind of cold and sterile. For me, it's more like taking the warm, reassuring hand of my father in heaven. It's like being that kind of small child, you know, like when I hold one of my own boy's hands. And I remember what it felt like as a small child myself, when you take a parent's hand and you just know that you're safe and you know that you're being looked after and you know that they at least know where it is that you're going and the contentment in that moment. We are all in need. We are all weak. And anyone who would tell you differently maybe just hasn't thought about it yet. Maybe they've not been through a season of any real pain or difficulty. Maybe they don't want to admit it because do so would mean owning up to their stuff, to their own weaknesses and to the hurt and pain that they've caused other people through that. This year, I think in some ways, has been a bit of a wake-up call to this idea. You know, as humans, we live in such, with such a, a sense of self-sufficiency a sense that we are in control, that we are all powerful. And one of the realities of COVID, I think, is that it's exposed this wrong thinking, that we are not in control, that we have far less control over our lives than we think we do. That as human beings, we are far weaker than we would like to admit. So Paul here speaks into the reality of our weakness as human beings, but he also speaks into the reality of the enemy. You know, he says, he talks about this reality of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world. Paul calls this thorn a messenger from Satan. It's like this constant reminder to Paul that all is not all is not as it should be. It makes him long all the more for the day that God will finally overcome the kingdom of darkness, will overcome it in all its fullness, and there will be no more pain or suffering. So for Paul, we start with the reality of our own weakness and the reality of our enemy. And we allow this to wake us up to the reality of our need for Jesus of allowing it, like Paul, to drive us into the presence of Jesus. This is true, we only know his sufficiency when we become aware of our insufficiency. So we start with our insufficiency that we are all weak, and then we go to his sufficiency. Number two, that Jesus is enough. You know, the truth is that when we go through a time of testing, of difficulty, of waiting in unanswered prayer, we often end up asking that question, don't we? Jesus, are you enough? Are you enough, Jesus? Maybe that's you right now. Maybe that's a conversation that you've had with God this past week and that pain of unanswered prayer. Maybe in this past year and all of its difficulties and disappointments. Maybe you're quite young in faith or you're just quite young in general. And this has been the first time that your faith has been tested in this way. And that's okay, you know, we've talked as a church about the importance of lament, that it's okay to be honest to God and ask questions like that. Jesus, are you even enough for me? Are you enough? Is this true? And I want to be really, really clear here that there is deep pain. I want to acknowledge there is deep pain in unanswered prayer, in the thorn that isn't removed, the situation that doesn't change. And I know this personally in my own life. You know, I've lost people I love dearly, having prayed that God would take their illness away. I still struggle with my stuff with situations that I find myself in, with feelings of anxiety. We have to be really, really careful of any theology or any reading of verses like these in chapter 12 that, and, and kind of oversimplify them to say, bad things happen because God, so that God tests our faith. That is bad theology and it's, it's insulting to someone in the midst of their pain who's lost someone they love or is struggling with a difficult situation. It doesn't do justice to the complexity and to the mystery of suffering. So that's not what I'm saying. 
But I am saying that faith in Jesus is to trust that in the midst of it all, in all the suffering, in our hardship, in our weaknesses, in our persecutions, that he is enough, that his love and his grace are enough for us, whatever situation you are in right now. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon in one of his uh, sermons on this passage in 2 Corinthians. He says this, It is easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for our immediate necessity is true faith. You know, that is so true, isn't it? When we look backwards or forwards in our lives, we can kind of hold loosely onto his grace in this kind of abstract sense. But it is much harder to do so when we are confronted by our current reality. You know, when the rubber hits the road, are we able to believe that his grace is enough, that Jesus is enough in the midst of the storm or a year into a global pandemic, when we feel most weak or most afraid, when we are struggling with this issue or that relationship? Are we able to see that Jesus wants to climb into the situation that we are in and hold us and speak over us like he does to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. I am enough. And of course, we see this no more clearly then when we think about what Jesus did for us, the act of sheer grace, the Easter story that he became weak for us so that we might be strengthened and restored. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the moment when we as Christians think about the moment where Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, fully aware of the awful events that were going to happen in that city what was going to happen to him. And we, we read that story about how the crowds gathered around him and they spread out their cloaks and they put down leafy branches and they basically kind of give him a, will, a welcome that was fit for a king. I mean, what an image. The creator of the world, our saviour, on a donkey, walking towards his death. Just a week later, he would be hanging, brutalised on a cross. Jesus gave up everything. He made himself weak for us. You know, Paul says in the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 4, he says this, Jesus was sheer weakness and humiliation when he was killed on the cross. But oh, he's alive now in the mighty power of God. You know, Jesus became weak for us and then overcame death, breaking its power so that we might find life in him. His grace is sufficient more than. And then lastly, Jesus strengthens us. Paul finds this section, um, Paul, Paul finishes this section of his letter by saying this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul has come to the realisation that this, this great strength comes from understanding our weaknesses, taking it to Jesus and learning that he is enough. It's like this kind of science experiment where you put two elements together and it causes this huge reaction. You know, putting these two ideas together, that we are weak, that we are insufficient, and that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient. When we put those two ideas together, it is life-changing. And we start to live a life of strength, or to use a different word, faith. So for Paul, this is so freeing, you know, so much so that he's happy to have this thorn kept in place. That is totally mind-blowing for our Western culture that craves comfort, that places our happiness as our top goal. 
But for Paul, he can see that it keeps him in that place where he stops striving. That place where you stop striving and you just stop pretending to be in control. Stop pretending to have it all together where you just let go and you let God. When you realise fully that Jesus is enough. Have you ever had a moment like this of total surrender? Now, that's not to say our circumstances won't ever change, that we won't ever um, have an answer to that prayer. We don't actually know whether this thorn that Paul speaks of here is ever removed. But I do know that Paul believed in and experienced a ministry of the kingdom that involved seeing people being healed and delivered, of seeing situations change, of seeing thorns being taken out. But the reality is that this side of heaven, there will often be something some thorn, some situation, some person, some difficulty, some weakness, some hardship, some persecution. And the invitation that Paul is to let it drive you to Jesus, to that place of surrender to him. And as you do so, as you put those two truths together to be strengthened by it, to allow his power to be poured into you. And the truth is that we learn something in those valley moments, in those difficulties or struggles that we face and with our thorn in our side, that we don't learn at other points in our lives. I've always loved this quote, an anonymous quote, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Maybe that's been your journey this past year. You know, I've definitely had moments, this, just this past year alone, where I've been like, Jesus, I can't pretend to be in control anymore. I am weak, I need you. And in that moment of surrender, just to receive his strengthening presence. Those moments where I'm like, Jesus, you're all I have and I'm clinging on. And that actually puts us in a place of strength, even when our circumstances don't change. It gives us a level of faith that we don't always experience or, or understand when life is happier, more chipper. <laughs> Understanding this, understanding the depths of Jesus' grace, that he is sufficient in spite of our insufficiency, that he is sufficient, that totally changes how we see our lives. It can totally change how we perceive our difficulties, the situations that we are in, that we face right now, our struggles. It puts us in a place of strength, the strength of Jesus, not our own strength, to deal with whatever comes our way. There is such hope in this. You know, if today, if you feel weak or tired or weary, if you're facing a difficult situation, a difficult relationship, a, diff a difficult um, kind of internal battle, if you're fed up with your stuff, you know, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Let this thorn in your flesh drive you into the presence of Jesus. Come and learn the truth that he is enough that we might be insufficient, but he is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And allow him in that place to pour his strength into you. Don't lose heart. Thank you.